0: Right at you know, out the outset, the aim was to have one patient pathway, one patient journey. Um, but what we realized is that isn't the case. Um, you you know, give you very practical examples. A patient that just wants to come in for 10 to 15 minutes of their Botox top up every three months is an in-out job. You know, wants to be in and out. It's very used to that. Cosmetic dental procedures are no in 15 minutes. You know, even a hygiene appointment is a lot longer. So, yeah, we've learned that that definitely isn't the case. And it's best to try and ensure you have the setup to separate those two pathways.
1: You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses, and how you can do the same. Let's jump in.
2: How do you combine a medical aesthetics practice with a cosmetic
1: dentistry practice and build one cohesive, successful clinic? That's the challenge facing Dr. Benji Dillon, co-founder of Define Clinic in the UK. He set up the clinic with cosmetic dentist, Dr. Mark Hughes in 2019. His own background is as a plastic surgeon. After finishing his training, he became Allergan's medical director for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. In that role, he led clinical studies into anti-wrinkle injections and dermal fillers and assessed new technologies and treatments that were in development for aesthetics. Now, after making his name as an injector on Harley Street, the location of London's most prestigious clinics, he's busy building defined clinics. Today I'm going to talk to him about this exciting new venture and what he's learned in his first year of business. Let's go. Benji, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here.
0: Thank you very much. Well, I'm glad to be here.
1: Fantastic. Well, I'm going to do something different today. i want to start with the end. Um, the end being Define Clinic, which is the clinic that you set up in the last year. Um, in 2019 um, and it's quite different because you're combining um, cosmetic dentistry and facial aesthetics um, and they're both equal like very often we see you know dentists opening up you know they, they, they start another part of their business which is facial aesthetics but in your vision um, they were, the two were equal right from the beginning so what was that your vision what what exactly was your vision here for the clinic?
0: Yeah absolutely We we started that with the concept of, or with the intention of really bringing together two areas that, um, when they combine, allow a full face approach to beautification and optimizing aesthetics. Facial aesthetics traditionally um, has focused obviously on skin and injectables, but one of the big, um, sort of, hugely underappreciated areas uh, or the impact of it from practitioners within facial aesthetics is the impact of cosmetic dentistry on facial aesthetics Um, and I think that is uh, a cultural thing in the UK because we are not as advanced in terms of um, uh, accessing and um, as a consumer cosmetic dental procedures or smile rejuvenation procedures as they are for example in the US we all know about the Hollywood smile as an example Uh, so therefore I think there's a, a you know, an understanding of it isn't as appreciated amongst consumers and definitely not as, uh, as amongst uh, facial estheticians and its practitioners. So, Essentially,
1: they've grown up, they've grown in parallel, but have only just now started to merge.
0: Yeah, yeah I think that, yes, they have. They've been siloed. Um, you know, they're both focused on improving the aesthetic of the human face, but have worked completely in silo, and there have been, you know, uh, you know people in the past um, that have moved between the two. And there are actually now a lot of fantastic world-leading dental facial aesthetic practitioners who are trained as a dentist but now focus on injectables. The, the way I look at it is it's very hard to be a jack-of-all-trades. It's very difficult to ensure excellence um, when it comes to not only patient outcomes but the service you can deliver and how you deliver it on many different things, uh, particularly for something like dentistry and facial aesthetics, because they are two different, very different patient pathways and two different setups in terms of requirement of things like equipment. So, as a result of that, you know what I've observed is um, is that something has to give. For example, if a dentist is doing this, can they maintain the same level of excellence in cosmetic dentistry as their facial aesthetics so what we wanted to do is really deliver both with two teams that are focused on a singular mission facial aesthetics or cosmetic dentistry but with the view of cross-pollinating each other because we are effectively working on the same real estate
1: so when you say um, cross-pollinating each other do you mean just in terms of the patients or do you mean in terms of practices Um, you know the way that you do things is it kind of a broader is it broader in that sense
0: well the the intention um, the primary intention was really um, patients cross-modelating patients patient that comes in for cosmetic dentistry is what I like to um, my terminology is aesthetically aware they are down that journey of wanting to look and feel better and actually Jumping over that obstacle to facial aesthetics is a lot. uh, The barrier is a lot lower than it would be for someone who's not doing any facial aesthetics or any cosmetic dentistry. So, absolutely, the the aim was to try and cross refer to each other to therefore grow each individual business, so to say. So, and then the the thing we've learned along the journey is setting up the two of them together is very very challenging. It is really difficult, and you know, we we set out with the fact that no one really had done it in the world. We kind of understand why.
1: (laughs) What what's the barrier? What's the difficulty?
0: It's um, you know, if I'm completely honest, it's the capital requirement to set up a a clinic like this. You know, dental practices require not even ten times more, multiple more investment and requirements of equipment Um, when it comes to clinic facilities, the building. Um, CQC regulations than any facial aesthetic clinic that I know um, or anyone that it tries to achieve so that is a big difference and one of the things we different, we've learned as well is the massive difference in the patient pathway uh, you know there's a difference between a patient who's going undergoing 10 to 20,000 pounds worth of cosmetic dentistry versus 2 to 3,000 pounds worth of facial aesthetic treatments and dealing with that patient requires a very different skill set
1: so have you managed to keep the two sides of the business integrated or have they turned into essentially two different businesses under one roof?
0: In some regards, yes. In some regards, we have learned that we shouldn't. So, you know, I think there's a better not integrate or they should. Yes, exactly. That we shouldn't integrate. So, for example, um, areas where we learned that they should and benefit from integration is shared services. Um, you know, Although there'll be treatment-specific marketing, actually marketing the whole business is a, is a benefit to the business. Um, there's you know, benefits in um, sharing overheads such as things like rent or um, a lot of the expensive stuff, but where we felt that it really does need to differ is how that patient's handled when they walk in the door. So There are two, albeit very different journeys when a patient comes in the door for cosmetic dentistry or facial aesthetics, but you know, wonderfully we have the opportunity for that journey to take a 90 degree turn and go to the other side if need be but the intent is that they have to be treated differently to each other because of the often the treatment plans that occur with cosmetic dentistry.
1: Did you understand that right from the beginning? Did you try to treat them the same at the beginning and that was a realization that came by doing this or how did, how did you come to this realization?
0: It, it was experience. We didn't realize that at the beginning. Um, right at, you know, at the outset, the aim was to have one patient pathway, one patient journey. Um, but what we realized is that isn't the case. Um, you you know, give you very practical examples. A patient that just wants to come in for 10 to 15 minutes of their Botox top up every three months is an in-out job. You know, it wants to be in and out. It's very used to that. Cosmetic dental procedures are no near 15 minutes. You know, even a hygiene appointment is a lot longer. So yeah, we've learned that that definitely is the, isn't the case and it's best to try and ensure you have the setup to separate those two pathways.
1: So do you think ultimately it is easier um, if you are, for example, a dentist um, who then st- starts doing aesthetics on site, is that actually easier than the way that you've done it ultimately? I, would you recommend what you've done to, to anyone else?
0: Uh, yes, I, I, I would recommend it, but you've got to have, ex, um, you know, being frankly honest, you've got to be read. There's a huge amount of investment that's required. Um, a lot of patience um, ha, and understanding has to be required because you are understand, you know, developing something new. <clears throat> what we are doing is actually we're in the process of, well, we have developed protocols. Um, to enable other businesses to do something like this if they wanted to. We've got a playbook, um, you know, that can be used. So it's it's definitely not easy. Um, I think what you've got to look at is what you're trying to achieve um, and what you're comfortable with. I think I I like to take myself out of my comfort zone all the time, um, but not many people do.
1: How about the patients? You understood the vision, obviously. Um, Did the patients get it? Do the patients get it?
0: Yeah, they do. They do, interestingly. Patients definitely understood it. They really loved the concept. They like the concept now. Um, they find it fascinating that we have both offers in the building um, on either side of the fence. And, you know, they learn a lot from, uh, from it all. Um, you know, as I mentioned, patients who come in for their injectables may never have considered cosmetic dentistry, but all of a sudden they're educated because they're exposed to it.
1: And so, how, how do you communicate the vision of the clinic to the patients?
0: Um, a lot of that lives on our website um, through our social media. Uh, we, we realize, obviously, the importance of assets like they, that these days. Um, another big thing is uh, our waiting room um, messaging. Now, we're not big on big banners, pull up banners, you know, posters. Uh, we try to elegantly do it with TV screens. Um, more around educational focus rather than a sales focus and I think education you know in the end sells so we try to educate them kind of subliminally the moment they walk in.
1: Okay so we'll definitely be talking about your marketing in a minute but first I want to ask you I never I never really got around to asking you about how you came to set um, to set up Define Clinic so why don't you tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah of course so uh my business partner uh dr mark hughes and i uh we know each other through our children going to school together um his daughter and one of my daughters are uh, the same year and we met uh, a few years back and after meeting we realized we were both on harley street at the time um and i got to understand a little bit about cosmetic dentistry from him just through social conversations he eventually ended up you know uh doing you know, his smile rejuvenated me. I underwent treatment with him to improve my smile. And I was blown away by the results and the impact it had. I felt like I was a pretty confident person before. I felt even more confident afterwards. Um, so
1: that's amazing that you can genuinely sell it because you've experienced it yourself.
0: Precisely, yeah. So we started, so I and as a result of that, we started to understand what each other did, and we started referring to patients to each other on the same road. And we realized that, you know, we were getting busier without having to spend much money on marketing. You know, we're getting some patients in. So it was really born out of that opportunity. I think we both saw those years back and we thought, listen, this belongs together in one building under one roof.
1: Now, what you're describing is actually quite unusual because the way that most clinics really evolve is that someone... Um, establishes the clinic, right? The, usually the doctor or whoever the clinic owner is, um, and then they bring in other partners. But you had you your model was a partnership right from the beginning. Is that correct? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah absolutely. We, you know, from the get-go, uh, we did this. um You know, we underwent a refurbishment of a, a very large building. For these kind of things, you need large buildings um, to fit. As I mentioned, the dental equipment. Um, and, you know, it was about, I think, four to five months of refurbishment of a, of a building, completely gutting it out. And we had to do that from day one because, you know, I have no idea about dentistry and what's required to put a dental chair in and the plumbing requirements.
1: So how does it work as a as an equal, I assume it is an equal partnership. How does it yeah. work as an equal partnership? You know, that that's quite, you know, can be quite difficult to navigate, really.
0: Yeah, so uh, we... I think we've learned, um, I think the big thing with any business is you're learning who's good at what. Um, and, you know, we have got our strengths in individually in things like um, policies and regulations and requirements, you know, dentistry's uh, regulations from CQC to, um, well, practically everything to do with CQC is a lot higher, the threshold for standards than it is for, you know, I'd say the medical aesthetics, if you're choosing to be CQC registered, So, you know, we adhere to the dental standards. So we're above and beyond what is expected of us. Um, And then we divide up things like marketing, you know, how we focus on things like, you know, external marketing and liaising with our agency who runs that or, um, you know, newsletters and things like that and, you know, social media. So we've got a good division of duty um, who oversees what. A big part of this is having the right team in place from the beginning. Uh, which I've mentioned to you before. And, you know, we have a practice manager that manages to, I think, handle both of us um, and are shooting stuff at her all the time. Uh, so you need the right people in place to really make it work.
1: How do you find those right people? Um, you know, there, there's many places in the world where finding the right people in an aesthetic clinic is actually a really big challenge. Um, also massive turnover. Um, so how, what's your secret to finding the right people?
0: Good luck is the best thing I think you
1: probably not a great long-term strategy although you know lucky Uh, criminals and all that
0: you know I think I think we all fall and I have as well in the past the falling into the um falling into the bucket of you're desperate for someone you hire the first person that comes your way um and I think actually the best thing to do is to exhibit some patience you know, speak to people. Wait for people. Wait for the right person to come along. So I think patience is number one when you have a, a vacancy or someone you you're looking to recruit. I think number two is, you know, it's drive and motivation. They're the biggest things. Drive and motivation. People who want to get stuff done. I'm a big believer in balance in life, and you know, I've got a large family. I love time with my kids. Um, but you know, I'm motivated to get stuff done and having the right team and people to do that is, is essential. Um, I think it's people you can get on with as well.
1: So looking for how, for dynamics as well as skills, essentially.
0: Yeah. And you know, I, I'm a believer that skills can be learned. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, if someone has never dealt with, uh, I don't know, uh, marketing, that's something that can be learned. If they've got the right attitude I think, yes, it takes time, but I would rather have someone with the right attitude from the beginning than someone with all the skills and the best CV in the world.
1: How do you test for attitude, though?
0: It's a very subjective feeling. During an interview, I mean, you, I, I've, I've worked in the corporate world and I've gone through and used multiple tools that you can assess attitude, you know, very objective uh, questionnaires, um, uh, exercises, and that they can definitely be used, and there are lots of those online. But I think the most important thing is subjectively interview, throwing out scenarios. I love assessing people through scenario play. Um, so ask them what they do in a given situation. Uh, choose a stressful situation. Don't just ask them what they have done in a stressful situation. Give them one and ask them to respond to that, or give them um, an example of balancing lots of different things being thrown their way. How would they deal with that? I think through those situations you can really get a good feel of someone and and their behaviors
1: Um, benji as far as i know this is your your first time that you have actually owned the business that you work in is that correct absolutely so it's the first time you've also really been the employer Um, so when you talk about teams um obviously hiring is just the beginning managing is is over the long term is the is the real is the real skill and the real test So what have you learned about managing people over this first year? Obviously, you may have managed people before, but what have you learned about being a good employer over this year?
0: It's one of the hardest things to do, and it probably takes up the most amount of time. It causes you, I think, the... I don't want to... Stress is the wrong word. People use that, but it weighs on your mind the most because I want to be a good employer. I want people to be... My driving force is people to be happy at work. Uh, my team to be happy. That is my absolute driving force. And I think you've got to to be a good employee. You've got to choose who you want to be. I'm I'm def- I hope my team would say I'm not a slave driver. I definitely don't think I am. Um, I'm probably a little bit of the opposite. So I think understand who you want to be. Um, I think the, the the essential items is honesty. Um, being honest with people. Um, you know, a good example is around this time that we've had to furlough people. Um, A lot of businesses and clinics are worried about are they going to be able to unfurlough people and bring them back or they're going to have to let them go? Have honest conversations with your employees. Um, I've done that during the process and, you know, spoken to our practice manager to have these conversations with them as well. So I think honesty is really important. Objective settings are massive ones. So give people definite objectives to hit. Um, You know, people love succeeding or exceeding a target or goal that's that's hopefully the people you got in place but probably the most important thing I've learned is that financial compensation isn't always the most important you know people always focus on how much money you can give it's making people happy at work and giving them experiences at work that I think is the most important thing more so yes money is important to everyone but you could pay someone all the money in the world but if they're unhappy at work you won't get a productive team member
1: and the research actually backs that up. The research shows that money only really goes so far in terms of, um, in terms of employee happiness. And that at a certain point, um, you know, employee relations, purpose is very, very important. Um, what are the specific things that you guys do um, in order to um, give your employees that, that feeling at work, that this is a special place? Um, really make them feel valued is there anything in particular that you've done that's been successful
0: I, I think it's what you can do every day it's a smile wear a smile on your face when you go in number one no one wants to see a miserable employer or an I you know I think I've been an employee in the past and I, may, I remember the time when you know I used to work in the corporate world or I used to work in the NHS when my consultant used to come in happy during a ward round everyone was happy right I think that's such a small thing and it's free um, wear a smile on your face and your team will smile back. Um, go on.
1: So obviously you've been, you know, this has been your first year of business. Now, yeah. it doesn't matter how great you're doing. The first year of business is always going to be very, very stressful. Um, so when you come in, when you say you have to come in with a smile on your face, you know, do you, do you, do you fake it? You know, when on the hard days, do you let your employees know that you're feeling that way?
0: um i know i i you know i try to leave my issues at home i mean they haven't bought the business or invested in the business i shouldn't burden them with my stresses and worries um i, I wouldn't say maybe i wouldn't say i fake it but you know i'm happy to be at work every day even if you have got stuff on your mind a million different things on your mind that are, are, are you know are weighing you down but you know, I think you, you have a responsibility. Um, You know, that's my view. Uh, Lots of people have definitions of leadership, but that's one of my views of leadership is exude happiness and kindness to those around you, particularly my team. So yeah, I I think the old adage of a swan, you know, floating gracefully on the lake, but paddling like crazily underneath the water is what I try to um, exhibit to my team. It's
1: interesting. Um, I think lots of people... I think everyone kind of tries to exude that to their patients, right? Because everyone understands that's part of customer care. But I reckon that not everyone really thinks about their employees, about the about the image of themselves they're projecting to their employees.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 vital because uh, there's only one of you and there's probably about six or seven of your employees. So if a patient's gonna walk in, they're gonna sense an atmosphere from them first, particularly if your first person they see is your front of house or your receptionist. Um, so it's, it's vital they are your most important people in the clinic um, particularly the you know patient facing at reception so you've got to you've got to do things like that I think other ways you can make your employees happy is have an open door policy um, you know any problem they, they know they can come and talk to me and they have spoken to me about varying issues um, I ask them straight up if there's any issues I don't beat around the bush um, if I sense someone's feeling a little bit off I'll ask them if they don't want to answer me. No problem. But I've asked them. Um, I think other things you can do is um, activities together. So we probably haven't done any major activities as a team, but we try to get together. You know, go out for a meal, go out for some drinks. You know, they don't have to pay. It's a small gesture in return for them. Little things make the big difference. And then I think the big thing we is we make them feel part of the journey. So. This is one thing I learned from uh, Mark, my business partner, is, you know, the clinic revenue and the targets, well, the total clinical river, how much we've made in a week, how much we've made in a day, how how much we've made in a month is not a hidden number. Everyone knows that number in the clinic. And I've never, at the clinics I've worked, that's never been the case. That number's always confidential to the owners. Once they know that, they're with you on the journey, right? There's this transparency, so to say. So I think those little things can make a difference.
1: And it gives them something concrete also to aim for, I would assume. Precisely. So let's take a step back. You've basically been in business for a year, but this has been a remarkably successful year. Like you really feel like a very, very established clinic in your social media presence and you know, your, 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 your media presence and really everywhere. Um, when you opened, where did the first patients come from? How do you set up a clinic from scratch? Where do the patients come from? How do you grow in that year?
0: So, uh, so yeah, we were, at one point I felt like I had to go out with a billboard on me to go and get patients in. But um, I was lucky. I mean, I, uh, I obviously been doing this for quite a few years. And when I first started out, I rented a room, um, as most people have done, not too far from where we have the clinic now. And I developed a patient base as a result of that in the local area. Um, which I nurtured over time, and uh, they were a lot of those were my first patients in through the door. But you know that's a very small list, and you exhaust that that base quickly um, because I had left the previous clinic I was at, which was in central London. So then you have to really go and implement a strategy around bringing new patients in, and that was the most challenging thing we've done so far.
1: How did you develop that strategy?
0: Um, I think number one is getting the right agency on board. So uh, we've worked with an agency from DayDot um, who have really been, um, they, they have, their history is in the dental sector, it's not in the facial aesthetic sector. So, but that was very useful to me because I think dentists are very successful um, at understanding patients and the need to nurture them, message them, communicate with them. So, their insight was valuable. They served very much as a counsel to me and an advice service in those early days. And uh,
1: around a business, did they help you develop a business strategy as well as a marketing strategy? Because it's not completely the same thing.
0: No, very different things. I would say they may fo- focused more so on our marketing strategy, how to and when to do it. So, once they understood the business, which is one of the big things I think you have to go through with any agency, get them to understand what you're trying to achieve. Their job, a good agency, is to tell you how to do it. Um, and you know, we implemented a number of strategies in those early days, and you learn a lot of things. They didn't know where we were based, or they didn't understand the area, so you gotta learn things about who you're targeting, what demographic. So I think really to get a good marketing strategy, you've gotta understand your business. Who is it you're speaking to? What do they need to hear? And how are you gonna say it to them? Is it Facebook? It sounds so simple, but in medical school they don't teach you this.
1: <laughs> it's also not simple and that strategy is usually the one thing that most clinics skip you know for us we have a three-step process we take clinics through strategy is number one um, because it's astonishing actually how many clinics have never really sat down and thought about those issues that you're talking about and to me who you're speaking to what you're saying to them how you're differentiating yourself those are actually the essence of marketing and I think what happens is that many clinics mistake, the pl- uh, in common with many businesses, by the way, it's not just an aesthetic issue, um, that they mistake the platforms for strategy. I, they think being on Facebook is a strategy. That's just a tactic. Um, and they're missing the fundamentals, which is how do you talk to people? How do you resonate with people? Who are those people? Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. And, and you know that... That was we put a lot of work in understanding that right from the get go. We 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 knew who we wanted to target, what areas we wanted to target, and we kind of knew the tone we needed to target them with. Um, and you know, we implemented that you know in the early days, and it's proved you know thankfully very successful. Um,
1: in terms of the tactics, that's the large strategy. Having one is obviously the key thing, um, but in terms of the tactics, what's worked best for you? Uh,
0: social media advertising. By, by far, um, paid, Facebook paid advertising, paid ads. paid ads, yeah, paid ads through Facebook. I mean, don't get me wrong, we've spent money on PPC and Google ads, um, but the, the best ROI we've had is through um, uh, paid ads.
1: And what what's worked the least well?
0: That's a, it's a difficult question. Um, I wouldn't, know, I would say, PPC has probably, um, PPC stroke Google Ads has been the most difficult because it's so expensive to acquire um, in now a very competitive landscape for those terms. Um, And yes, you know, the argument is when someone clicks on it, they are, there's someone who's in, you know, they're easier to convert. Um, But I would say that we've got the least ROI, but it's one of the things you just, I don't, you can't, you find it hard to give up completely. Because you need that, you want that presence somewhere there.
1: Yeah, people have attachments to, you know, yeah. there's almost like a guilt factor. We should be doing this. Right. If the money is going down the drain. Don't do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 precisely. It's all about where your, where your money's coming in.
1: One thing I have noticed, though, is that you have an absolutely fantastic personal presence, really, on, uh, on Instagram and um, on, on other platforms. How seriously do you work at that?
0: Uh and, so and do you mean my personal Instagram or the clinic Instagram?
1: Well, you have an account that is really centered around you. The truth is I can't okay. remember right now whether it's um whether it's in your name or the
0: Yeah, it might I think you might you might be referring to the one in my name. So um how good am I with that? I've been I go in peaks and troughs with Instagram. I go through periods where I'm I'm great, I'll plan all my posts, I'll put stuff out, um, and then I go through troughs and actually lockdown has been Honestly, a I, I've been so busy with kids and homeschooling that I haven't been able to manage to focus on it. But it is absolutely vital to have a presence on social media um, because when I'm active, I get uh, inquiries left, right, and center. It's fantastic. I mean, they're not all convert, conversions, but they are, you know, they're active inquiries. So, um, so I think you have to, I'm just about to um, ha- get someone on board to help me with my social media. Um, and I'm only doing that because I'm just time poor at the moment and I'm finding it difficult to manage myself.
1: What do you do in order to convert those, um, those inquiries that come in through social media? Because for many clinics, that's the sticking point. It's actually taking those um, the inquiries and actually getting them converted.
0: It's messaging them myself. So, you know, rather than a bot or rather than uh, one of your team messaging on your behalf, it's me Um, and it's quite obvious me because I'm asking the right questions and what I'm doing um, in terms of asking the right questions, I'm engaging with them. Uh, A lot of people will ask you about a treatment. That's what they come to Instagram for. Um, You've got to flip that conversation and not make it about the treatment and make it about what they're concerned about. Um, And then once you talk about that, You know, I found that on average takes three or four replies and then you get them to um, either provide you their telephone number and get your clinic to call or you provide them the email address or phone number. And I found, you know, a great deal of them will, will come in and book in
1: what are you going to do at a certain point, you know, as clinics, as clinics grow, there's less and less of the business owner can do themselves. So is that the kind of thing that eventually you'll be able to outsource or is really the secret source It, it is you. So how, how do you manage that long-term?
0: I think it's the secret source. You have to keep doing it. I was just in a webinar today talking about, in fact, interestingly one of the things was business with um, a doctor from Australia and a doctor from Hong Kong. And one of the, the very successful doctors from Australia, he rings all his patients, any tricky patients, the next day himself, he picks up the phone and calls them. Instagram, he messages themself. And he, he's maintained that for years and he's gonna to continue to do so. So I think that's the one thing you have to do. That's your, you know, uh, people coming and- personal touch. Yes, yeah, it's the personal touch. And particularly on my Instagram, I put a lot of my personality up there, you know, my life. And- Well, actually I was gonna ask is- you about
1: that because you, you, for example, have lots of pictures of your kids Um, you know, is that something you you do, is that a deliberate part of the strategy essentially?
0: Yeah, Yeah, it is because, um, I want people to know who I am. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of putting up loads of before and afters. That's just me personally. I know accounts with hundreds of before and afters and they are very successful. Um, I want people it's to come exactly to me.
1: Quite, it's actually quite hard to differentiate with before and afters now on social media. because everyone.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, um, your before and afters is your website. Um, or it can be when they come in clinic. I think people want to trust someone and they want to know that they're real. You know, they want to see a face behind the name, a face behind the business. And that's what I try to convey.
1: Do you ever, um, you know, do you ever worry about exposing your kids too much? Or? Great
0: question, uh, me and my wife is, uh, we have lots of conversations, she's not too keen uh, often, you know, actually I've gone to put up some photos and she's told me to not post it at all, uh, you know, it, yes, it's something that plays on my mind and look, they, I've watched many documentaries on this, they may at one point in the future tell me to take all those photos down, they have every right, I try not to Maybe too You may
1: know, also discover, for example, my oldest child has now told me I'm not allowed to put up any pictures of yeah, her. Yeah,
0: that will happen if at one point. When you
1: get to a certain age, yeah. they're gonna be setting the rules.
0: It's already starting to happen for me Miriam, <laughs> with my eldest <laughs> who's ten. So yeah, I mean, it's difficult because you know, people come into my clinic and they see a picture of my family in my treatment room. I tell, you know, primarily women who come to see me that I have three daughters, I have a moral ethical obligation to do the right thing because if I don't, karma will come around in full circle. So I keep that front and center for as to my why's and why my philosophies for treatment.
1: Okay, on that personal note, we're going to take a little break. When we come back from the break, actually we're gonna get even more personal because I wanna hear all about your background and how you got in and and you you took quite a long path um, to where you are now. Um, So we're gonna discuss that as well. We'll just take a quick break, and then we'll
2: be back. Hey, it's Miriam here again. And during this break, I have a quick question for you. How easy are you finding it to market to your patients now that your clinic has reopened after lockdown? Lots of practice owners are struggling. They're not sure what to say to patients in this new normal. People are still recovering from the shock and the trauma of quarantine. Many have lost jobs and income. Sending the same old blunt promotions just doesn't feel appropriate anymore. You might be operating with a smaller team and a smaller marketing budget, and reopening your clinic is so much work, you don't even have the headspace to focus on marketing right now. If you can relate, let me introduce you to Inbox Express. That's our library of marketing emails written specifically for aesthetic clinics and med spas just like yours. They're designed to make your marketing to your patient database as easy, as quick, and as effective as possible, so you can get patients back through your doors again and again, even in these difficult times. All you need to do to get these emails working for your clinic or med spa is to fill in a few blanks, upload them to your marketing platform, and hit send. You don't have to worry about messaging because it's all done for you. Each template takes an average of one to two minutes to customize, making your marketing more manageable during this pressured time. To find out more, visit inbox-express.com. That's inbox-express.com. I'll include the address in the show notes, so just take a quick look in the text under the podcast and you'll find it there. Now back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to How I Scaled My Aesthetic clinic. I'm here with Dr. Benji Dillon of
1: Define Clinic. Um, and Benji, I want to talk to you a little bit about your background and how you got into aesthetics in the first place. Tell me a little bit about um, about where you come from, where you grew up. How did you get interested in this stuff in the first place?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always say it's somewhat unconventional how I've ended up in aesthetics. Uh, I kind of fell into it a bit by accident. Um, it wasn't intentional from the outset. So I uh, was brought up in Brighton. Went to medical school in London. Um, I, I started uh, my general surgical training. Ended up focusing on uh, plastic surgery. And I was working in East Grinstead, which is a tertiary referral centre for plastic surgery. Um, and I was, you know, on my journey to get my, uh, you know, higher surgical training, etc. But I actually um, I started to get disenfranchised with the NHS uh, back then. Um, mainly around the fact that I had had or we had had our first child i wasn 't seeing her a great deal um, and that really started to impact me. The second thing was is that as a surgical trainee, I was actually starting to not do much operating and this is a, a, one of the initial uh, I, i'd like to say roots of some of the problems within the NHS now is back then that 's when they were really starting to implement um time, um, limitations on procedures, which meant that trainees who were the future generation of surgeons were being sacrificed. They were losing that experience. So I was spending all this time dedicating numerous hours to going into surgery and not being able to do what I loved, which was operating, which was cutting, you know, as we say. So, you know, I, what I got to, I've always had this, um, this, uh, this want to experience more than what I was doing. And it had, it had been playing on my mind for a little while. I wanted to see what was out in the world outside of medicine. And I, my intention was to just go and experience something and come back to medicine at some point. So funnily enough, the, the hospital I was in, I was um, on the Burns ward, and the, the receptionist at the time's father was a GP that worked for a very big um, pharmaceutical company called Allagam that makes Botox and she put me in contact with him, and he's a lovely guy, um, and we had a conversation around pharmaceutical medicine. I was so excited to go and work for the the Botox company, Aesthetics, and he said to me um, on the phone, he goes, look, you're too new, you've never been in this industry, you've never been in the corporate world, you need to go work somewhere else, and we'll have a conversation maybe in a year. So it kind of got my mind thinking. Um, I applied for a few jobs in pharmaceutical medicine, I actually applied for a few jobs in, um, the consulting space, uh, PwC, uh, you know, um, private equity, et cetera. You know, I was exploring lots of different things, McKinsey, but then uh, a company called, a Danish pharmaceutical company called Leo Barmer got back to me and they are very famous for making fuse the bet and fuse in, which everyone has in their cupboard. And they offered me a job, um, in a very different town in Buckinghamshire, which I'd never been to. And, you know, looking back, it was a bit of naivety, a bit of bravery. I just said one day, I'm done. I handed in my notice at the NHS and got my wife and our little kid. We rented out a small flat, middle of nowhere. And I started work for this pharmaceutical company. And it was incredible. You know, I didn't have a very senior position, but I was in a whole different world. I was learning about things I'd never learned before, like looking at spreadsheets. I'd learned about what a marketing strategy is, what a medical education strategy was.
1: Well, I'm sure that came in very useful that now that you're a, a business owner, essentially.
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I loved that. I, I did it for, and I got to travel, which was, you know, an added bonus. And it was probably much a year to the day that um, the Dr. Allegan, he who is the vice president now, called me and he said, we've got a job for you. <laughs> So um, I very quickly went on to Allegheny and became the medical director of um, their aesthetics division. I made a big step up for look from looking after the UK to having a team of about 12 people I had to look after across uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa and setting a strategy for a lot of different companies working with a massive marketing department who was, you know, marketing fillers and Botox and breast implants. And that was incredible. You know, I got to truly see the world and experience new things then.
1: I do think, though, that it's significant that you had that experience, um, because I think that, as you mentioned, actually, at one point um, when we, when, uh, earlier in the conversation, you know, many clinic owners, you know, it's not the kind of stuff that you teach in med school. Like, do you think that maybe, you know, uh, how that, has that experience really fed your, your working life as a business owner?
0: Um, it's. I, I would say it's definitely helped me on the employment side. Definitely um, helped me on the strategic side. Um, you know, th- those have been uh, you know absolutely essential learnings that I had from my time within the corporate world. The big thing that I probably didn't learn in the corporate world that is essential to now is managing a and L and understanding profitability. Because you, you know, that's left to the financiers in this corporate world. And as a business owner, you have to. You, know, you have to the
1: understand it. the money is the key, isn't it? Money's so the
0: key, still missing the- <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. So, uh, you know, I love my time at Allegand, but it was really my time at Allegheny that I was asked to look after the, you know, the, the injectables division and run research that I had to start understanding what was involved. Now, I, I had only done a bit of Botox and facial palsy clinics in the NHS, I'd never touched a filler, um, and I, I had to go around the world following a number of different people. Watching them, learning them, learning from them, asking them questions to set up a medical education program or help set up called the Alleghan Medical Institute, which is massive now. Um, and, you know, some of these guys to this day are the best in the world. So I was extremely privileged and fortunate by pure accident to learn from day one from these stalwarts of the industry.
1: And what did you like about it so much, about what you saw that actually led you to want to practice aesthetics yourself?
0: I love the artistry of it. I love the fact, you know, one, you're using your hands and you're crafting something. You're, you're creating something and you can make profound improvements on facial aesthetics from an injectable. That just immediately, that just got my mind spinning. I love that with the marrying of the science and understanding the anatomy and that, those two things together really got me excited. Um, so I was watching loads. I, I spent time relearning my anatomy because I've been out of, out of it for a little while. And I eventually just hired a room, um, not too far from where I was living at the time. And I did a clinic a couple of th- days a week in the evening after my time with Alleghan and at the weekends.
1: What did you learn? Um, I, I, you also went to work for other, for other doctors, correct? Is that correct? No, not, not at that
0: point. So uh, whilst I was with Allegan, I just worked for myself in the evenings and weekends. Um, when I left Allegan, and I left Allegan because they were, went through an acquisition and I wanted to leave, that I, I met with a clinic owner in Harley Street and then I ended up working with him.
1: First of all, um, being involved in, re- in the research side must have been extremely interesting. So what kind of projects were, were you involved in then?
0: So uh, I was really responsible for post-marketing, phase three, uh, beef to phase four studies. Those are great because we're taking real um, time experience of products and how they're being used by doctors or um, it, you know practitioners worldwide. And often it was understanding novel indications of treatments. So. That was really fascinating because you're learning new things about a product that you never knew about. And then I did have I had a lot of interaction with the R&D department in study design for devices, for injectables, and really understanding at a you know, phase two, early phase three, how they put together these studies to get the indications they were seeking.
1: And is research something you're still interested in or is that now behind you?
0: I love research. I absolutely love research. Um, I just don't have the time for it now, which makes me really sad. Um, it, it's one of the things I would love to have a, a research department at my clinic at some point in the future.
1: Yeah, which definitely can, definitely can be done. Um, one, of our, one of the podcasts um, in the series before is with Dr. Bruce Katz, um, who... Ah that led some of the, um, you know, the most amazing studies in the, in I, the I, world. I know
0: of him. I, yeah, I've read lots of his papers.
1: So that's definitely worth listening to. Um, so you then went to work for other people as well. How what, what was that like? Um, what did you learn from the experience of practicing aesthetics in someone else's practice?
0: Yeah, um, so I joined um, a very well-known clinic, very well-respected clinic in central London with a very well-respected injector. And he, you know, he, he took me under, under his wing, and to this day I'm eternally grateful for what I learned from him. And he, he said it at the time, and I still believe in this to this day, that my, um, my skill set, my development was basically exponential as a result of being able to watch him day in, day out and then a couple of times him watching me do things and advising me how to change things so i was learning you know with my hands really advanced techniques from day one i wasn't going you know i bypassed a lot of the mistakes people made and i'm very you know very lucky to have had that um, opportunity so um that really helped me from a um a practical point of view um it also taught me how to deal with patients you know uh, this is a very well-known clinic. with very wealthy patients that come to it. Um, Although there's a, a very mixed bag of society that come. But what I learned across the, across the demographics was how to speak to these people. You know, what is it? What is it they're coming in for? This is not, you know, traditional medicine. This is not life or death. This is an aesthetic outcome we're seeking and how to, what are the touch points that are important for them?
1: So what did you learn? How, what's the secret to speaking to aesthetic patients?
0: Um, you've got to dive into their drivers. That's number one. What is driving them um, in terms of what are the what what they're wanting to achieve? You've got to understand their priorities. One of the things I've experienced that a lot of patients that walk into a clinic tell you they want X when actually they want ABC, they just didn't know how to say it to you. So you've got to really tease that out of them um, through your discussions, and that takes time. So I don't believe in, you know, I don't, my personal view is in doing half an hour new patient consultations. I do an hour. Um, so we have sufficient time to explore that. People also want a treatment plan. They may not want to pay for it all, but they want to know they're coming to you as the expert that what are all the things that I could do? Right. It's, it's great being able to walk into, I don't know, a fantastic store like Harrods and saying, what are the things I could buy? I may not buy it all, but I want to go have a look around and shop the floors. So I think you've got to really give them a plan to walk away with, um, for them to feel like they've got something.
1: Okay. Um, there's one elephant in the room, which before we end, I have to ask you about, which is coronavirus. Obviously, as we're reporting this, the, the practices are still not open. Um, and coronavirus hit your practice at a particularly sensitive time, right? Because essentially, you you haven't been open for terribly long. Um, how do you deal with that? Right at the moment when you're on the up, um, everything Due to circumstances beyond your control, has to stop. So first of all, how do you deal with that mentally?
0: Um, I think number one is uh, don't panic. I didn't panic. Um, yeah, you, I was upset. Yeah, I was you know worried, but you can't panic. Um, you yeah, know what I what brought me back to earth is there were people dying out there, right? And you know health is. Uh, I, I think I had the virus soon after we closed down. I think I did. I haven't had a test. Um, And I was quite ill, so I I didn't panic. And I think once you don't panic, you can look at things, you know, sit back and decide what to do. Um, And very quickly, I tried to move on, you know, getting funding in place, because we were a new clinic, we didn't have significant reserves of cash, so we had to go for what was out there and being offered by the government. That took a long time, that was stressful. Um, And then really, it's around how you can just put the clinic into hibernation, which we did, um, you know, Primarily managing our overheads because we didn't have the cash to facilitate those um, during lockdown. And then it was about how to nurture the people you're speaking to. So, our loyal patients, a lot of them have my personal phone number. So, I was in contact with them a lot of the time anyway. So, uh, you know, they had that point of contact with me. But, you know, rightly so, a lot of people are scared about this. And they're, we're going to be in this for a good year to year and a half, understanding that the the landscape's going to change, and things are going to continue to evolve. I think with each change, and we may even have to lock down again if a second wave comes, don't panic. You know, um, it happen- it's happened. There's nothing we can do about this. This isn't you performing badly. This is something completely out of our control.
1: Beyond the safety measures, um, which everyone is now instituting, and especially if you have a dental side to your business, that's even you know, even more important. Um, how is your clinic going to change in response to this?
0: So uh, some of the things we're, you know, aside from safety measures is we're going to really, um, I think, streamline the patient journey, actually put in place some of the things we wanted to. This is a good opportunity. So try to go to full digitalization. So that benefits us from a paperless perspective, but also benefits us from a reducing the risk of transmission. So people sign their consents for upfront Um, you know, people will um have to complete treatment plans up front. We're gonna uh we're aiming to take payment up front for all procedures, which is very uncommon in aesthetics, but is happens all the time in dentistry or should do. Um and that's not gonna be an easy journey, but we're on that journey now. Um so I think streamlining, making ourselves more efficient um is gonna be the probably the most important thing we're gonna have to implement. The second thing is around our tone of voice and our marketing. So I think the way we're going to speak, well, the way we are going to speak to our patients is going to completely change. It has to be, it has to be a lot gentler. It has to be a lot more understanding. It can't be so brazen and in your face as maybe people have done beforehand. You know, people have had people that affected or even lost loved ones. So we've got to be sensitive to that. Um, And I think we've got to give something back. So Is it a small gift you give each patient? I think people respond to that quite nicely.
1: Yeah, when it comes to the tone, I absolutely agree with you. It's been shocking to see some clinics that have reopened in other places in the world, how after sending a really nice message, really nice email saying, we're so happy to have you back. The very next email is kind of hitting people over the head with some desperate sounding promotion and it jars so badly with where I think people are, um, mentally Um, marketing has definitely changed and clinics relationships with their patients has to change as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, so now last question, looking back on the last year and a bit, um, building this, in not really innovative, um, fantastic practice, what is the one lesson, the biggest lesson that you've learned that you would like, that if you could go back in time, tell yourself on day one, you wish you'd known then? That's
0: a very difficult question. Um give me a second to think about that. What's the one thing I'd do differently?
1: Or the one thing you know now that you'd wish you'd known then?
0: Take your time, have patience, and it will happen. And I was trying to run in the early days before I'd really learned to walk. And a lot of people told me at the time, "It they will come, it will happen." And as a result, what I think I did is I front-ended a lot of my investment in marketing, and you know, I, I probably didn't have the the process in place to capitalise on the, those inquiries. So I think that, yeah, the big thing I would tell myself a year and a half ago is slow down. Um, It it will work. It will happen. You've got the right ideas in place. You just need to have a bit of patience.
1: Yeah, And it sounds like also from everything you've said that um, that managing the financial side is also super, super important. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, If people want to reach you, where can they reach you?
0: um, they can, uh, happily reach me through Instagram. As you know, now I respond to my messages myself. Um, they can email the clinic on info at defineclinic.com Um, and I'll be delighted to, um, if they call out for me, I'd be happy to get back to anyone.
1: Fantastic. And we're going to put all those details also in the show notes. So anyone listening to this, you just have to go right under this recording. All those details will be there, um, including all the social media contacts. Um, Benji, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure having you here today. Um, And I look forward to interviewing you in another year or so to hear about the lessons of year two.
0: Fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Miriam.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. And for everyone else, I'll see you on the next episode of how I scaled my aesthetic clinic. I am Miriam have of BrainStorm Digital. Have a great day.